what does it take to be a syndicator who has no trouble raising money, who can raise $2 million, $20 million in a matter of days rather than months? Well, the answer is simple, and it actually boils down to just three questions. And by answering these questions, it'll make everything work so much better. You'll be able to raise money much faster. You'll be able to market easier. You'll be able to save costs on your marketing. And you'll probably even be able to find deals to syndicate easier. Now, by not answering these three questions, it cost me a lot. I had to learn these the hard way. And I've noticed that as a syndication mentor and as an attorney, I see new people who are trying to syndicate hit this roadblock all the time by not answering these three questions. And I see experienced people get set back as well by not answering these three questions. So in this video, we are gonna go through the founder investment theory. start talking about founder investment theory, let's flash back to my first deal. So my first deal came on by landing on my desk when a partner said, hey, do you think we can syndicate this deal? Now the deal was smoking hot. It was a good deal. It was going to make money. It was, uh, it was very, very secure. And uh, I had a lot of faith in it. I've seen a lot of deals that were good. I've seen a lot of deals that were bad. This was definitely in the good category. So it met all the criteria. We got the deal, uh, it was good, put it into escrow and started working on putting that syndication together. But that syndication process actually ended up taking six months. Now, a good portion of that time was just making sure we were doing things absolutely right, complying with all the laws, a step, a step most people will skip, uh, but you're not going to because you're in this program. But the other part was finding the right investors and getting them matched up with the property was challenging. Now, the bar for me was pretty high because I have this friend, Mike. And Mike is a very active syndicator, and he has no problem raising millions and millions of dollars in a matter of hours. So the bar for me was high. I wanted to challenge it. And so I did everything that I could to fund that deal and to find the right investors. So I tried researching marketing, sales. I tried every sales uh, gambit I could take. I uh, tried every sort of marketing angle I could take. I experimented with things. I spent a lot of money and a lot of time to try and find those investors and get them matched up. Now, my approach was shotgun or throw the spaghetti at the wall. I pitched that deal to everybody and everybody I pitched, it was, I never really got very far. So one day I uh, was lucky enough to have a, a lunch that I set up with a prominent physician whose name was Dr. S. Now, Dr. S was known to me. Uh, I had done a, done deals with Dr. S before and he was a great guy very easy to get along with, very candid and just, you know, liked what he was doing and liked his place in life. He wasn't practicing anymore. He was just, you know, having fun and uh, living the good life of a retired, uh, fairly well-to-do person. 
So I had this lunch with Dr. S and I went in with the intention to pitch him the deal because I knew that he could easily come in for at least $300,000 in my deal, which would make a huge difference in getting that deal closed up. So I uh, sat down to lunch. I started pitching him uh, the deal and he looked at me with a furrowed breath and I told him everything about the deal. Uh, he said, okay, is that it? And uh, he said, uh, I said, yeah, yeah, that's, this is the deal. It's great, huh? He said, mm, yeah, it's okay. Um, it's not for me. And I was kind of taken aback because I thought, well, for sure he would do this deal. He likes me. He knows me. He trusts me. Uh, you know, it, it seemed like a, and the deal was good. So it seemed like he would be a sure thing to go in this deal. And I said, okay, well, um, well why not? And so Dr. S turned to me and he said, well, let me tell you, I've got three different categories of investments. The first category is I have my safe money. So you can think of that like it's in bonds or munis or things like that, that it's very unlikely that anything is going to happen to that money. It's very unlikely I'm going to lose anything in it. If the Great Recession comes again, I'm going to be okay with that money. It's not going anywhere. That's the first category. The second category of money is my income money. That's the money that I live off of. I need to get about a 10% return, not very uh, substantial. I just need to get some money um, and I still want it to be pretty safe, but I'm not looking for anything very special. I'm looking for regular consistent income. The third category of money that I have is my play money. Now my play money is for me to just have fun. It's those deals where I can speculate, I can come up with, uh, find somebody who's got a crazy business idea and, and be a part of that. Uh, and really it's just play money. Now I'm probably not gonna make this money back in any one particular deal, but the returns are so high, I'll probably get it back in, uh, you know, down the road. And if one hits it out of the park, I've made a little bit of money. But really, I'm not looking for my play money to actually make me money. I'm just enjoying it and having fun. It's not a big portion of my, of my wealth. It's just a little bit. And uh, I took a deep breath and I said, okay, well, um, you know, would, does, uh, you know this, is, this is a great property. Um, you know, it's really good. And he said, yeah, but this doesn't fit. It's not safe money. It's not income money. And it's not play money. I mean, it's not safe because it's real estate. It's not income because you told me that the real value in this uh, property is its appreciation. And the IRR you told me about this deal is at 17%. Well, that's way below where my play money mark uh, is. So it's just not the deal for me. But I appreciate you telling me about it. Please tell me about your next deal. So I left that lunch with no check in hand but I did leave with an education. So that night I am thinking about Dr. S and I'm reading a book uh, about Warren Buffett and how Warren Buffett would invest. Now, you obviously know who Warren Buffett is, uh, one of the greatest investors of all time, but not in uh, commercial real estate generally. So I asked myself, would Dr. S invest in Berkshire Hathaway? And I had to come up with the answer of no, I don't think that he would. So Dr. S 
wouldn't see Berkshire Hathaway as being especially safe. He's still invested in companies, which still uh, isn't as safe as, say, like a, uh, a treasury bond. So it's likely that, that uh, it just doesn't meet that safe, no matter what happens, criteria. It's also not, Berkshire Hathaway is not income money in Dr. S's uh, viewpoint, because uh, Berkshire Hathaway generally doesn't pay uh, dividends. The third reason is it's definitely not play money. I mean, this isn't going to be making him that 50% really fun money that he gets to be a piece of the action and kind of uh, have fun with. So it's not play money either. So Dr. S wouldn't invest in Warren Buffett. So, huh, what does that mean for me and what I'm trying to do? <clears throat> and so Dr. S wouldn't invest in my deal and he wouldn't invest in Berkshire Hathaway. So that led me to answer, well, what those three questions are that turned everything around. And it became the body of the founder investment theory. So question number one is, what is the overall strategy? Now, obviously, Warren Buffett is known as a value investor. He's looking at, at investments whose intrinsic value is way below the sales price of that, of that investment. So that's what Warren Buffett does. So what's my, uh, what's my overall strategy in this? In this case, let's go to uh, what the different strategies of commercial real estate are, and then we'll, we'll look at where this investment fell, um, falls in line. All right, so we've got our founder investment theory. Oftentimes I'll call it the fit uh, for founder investment theory. Um, and so you'll, you'll hear me say that time and time again, FIT or Founder Investment Theory, they're the same thing. So question number one is what are the, what is the strategy? Now I look at the strategy kind of along a continuum. And along that we've got our hold period. And we've got our uh, complexity. And there's five different common strategies. Now I'm going to put them on this, uh, where they fall for me on this continuum on how I like to do things. Now yours could be completely different. And so uh, the first example of that is development. For me, development has a longer hold period than, say, something that is um, that is just like a flip. Uh, for I am, I would be doing most of my development where I'm close to the property, and so development for me is uh, is has to be pretty nearby. Every development I have done, I could drive to. So, in California, which is where I'm located right now. Our entitlement process takes forever. You're looking at more than two years in order to get the entitlements and even get it to ground ready. So for me, that whole period is just longer than a year or two years um, to get something going. 
So for me, the whole period is longer. That's why it goes in this quadrant. Uh, for you, it may be it may be significantly less, and that's totally fine. And it may be something that's not complex. It doesn't matter. What the point is, is that you understand where your strategy falls on the continuum as you see it. So we've got development. Obviously, we're looking for raw land or for an underutilized location. The second is value add. When I'm looking for a value add opportunity, I'm looking for deferred maintenance, a missed opportunity, below market rents or high vacancy, something that I can do. I, something that I'm gonna have to put some work into, and so it's complex, uh, but it won't take me years in order to do it. So for me, value add tends to be fairly, uh, fairly short. And compare that to um, the same idea of stabilized, value add, which is you're finding properties that have maybe a normal vacancy, but the leases are expiring and you want to capitalize on that uh, by either re by either bringing those, those rents back up to market or you're looking for below market rents in general. And then as leases expire, you're building those, those lease rents back up in order to get uh, more value out of the property. Um, this generally, because you're, you're looking at more than one tenant a lot of times, it takes longer. You're just at the cycle of whenever leases come due in order to build up that value um, into the property. Uh, but still, because you're doing leasing and you're doing renewals, the complexity is a little bit higher. Then you've got your undervalued properties. These are ones where they are trading significantly below replacement cost, or they're deals where um, they have a very, very low price per square foot. Maybe it's got a very high cap rate because leases may be renewing, but they, they don't know whether the tenant is, is going to renew or not. These are undervalued properties. And uh, so the, the strategy typically with these is you basically flip. So you sell them maybe a year after, take advantage of the capital gains tax for your investors. Um, so you hold for a year, then you sell, resell. It's an undervalued strategy. And the last strategy is your cash flow strategy. And these are those properties that are in prime locations where you're either looking for massive appreciation or you're looking for rent escalations uh, in order to add that value. And normally this will take place over an extended period of time. I just did a deal that has an 18 year hold period. Uh, long story why it's an 18 year hold period, but it's a cash flow deal that really is just banking on that appreciation and uh, it has a very, very long cycle. Um, so uh, these are the five basic strategies that make sense. So that first deal that I was talking about really kind of bridged the gap between these, this, in this realm, in this undervalued, uh, uh, and to cash flow properties is really where it fell in. It was not a value add deal. It was brand new construction. Um, the tenant was already in place, but it hadn't been turned on yet. 
so that's why it was undervalued. Um, and then it was in a good location. And so really it was wait until the rent bump uh, at year five and then sell the property, which is what I did. Um, so that is the strategy. Now, the second question we ask ourselves is, what is the, what is the niche? And this can either be your prop, this can be either or both, uh, your property type or your location. So for property type, is it going to be office building, apartment building, industrial building, medical office, retail, strip center, mall, uh, self-storage, uh, airports, I mean, whatever it is, um, what is that property type? Now, you don't need to necessarily specialize in just one property type, but just be aware of where you fit and what you generally emphasize. The second is this idea of location. So that first property that I did was across the country. It took more than six hours to fly there because you had to change planes in order to do it. Um, so it was not near me. Other properties, like properties I developed that I mentioned, I like to be able to drive to regularly so I can kind of keep an eye on it and monitor its progress. So location is also important. Um, and if you're going to be doing deals near you, maybe you're an expert. And it also kind of uh, brings to how you talk to your investors. For example, some investors in California don't like to invest outside of California. Other investors in California only like to invest to California. So if I have a California deal, I'm talking to one group, not the other, and vice versa for something outside of California. Some people like something hyper-local that they want to visit and go see before they invest in. Other times, they don't care. They just want high returns. So the second question is niche. And the third question that we ask ourselves is, what is the uh, risk profile? The risk profile is where on that continuum does it stand? Does uh, does the property stand? We have very high risk. We have very low risk. Uh, so maybe a very high risk is paying something like a 40% IRR. Maybe a very low risk is paying something like a 10% IRR. You may be asking yourself, well, why would somebody do a 10% IRR deal? Well, they may be wanting to do that deal just to get exposure into real estate and don't really want to be a part of a REIT or something like that. They don't like the efficiencies in REITs. Uh, what about the 40% IRR? Well, who wouldn't want that money? Who wouldn't want it? Well, somebody who's just generally risk averse. Uh, somebody who doesn't want a high risk product, who wants to make sure that their money stays safe. Uh, that's a lot of people. And somewhere in the middle, you have sort of a medium risk investor. And maybe that's paying out 15% IRR. In general, I try and stay in this bandwagon here as long as it's not a development deal. I'm trying to stay between 
and maybe 17 or 18 percent. I'll say 17 here. Uh, that's the kind of profile that I'm generally market to. So that's part of my founder investment theory. And the reason is because the people who are attracted to the very high uh, deals are not going to be attracted to the very low deals. They're not attracted to a 10% IRR. And it's probably a waste of time to talk to them about the medium risk deals. They probably aren't very interested in 17. If the person you're talking to starts saying, yeah, but I can get uh, you know, 40% over here, you've probably got a, uh, a very high risk uh, tolerant person that is looking for just that kind of deal. Whereas um, if they start to get a little afraid about what you're saying uh, in terms of returns and they are asking a lot about how risky it is, they might very well be in the, this very low risk category. And when you put it all together, when you put these three questions together, what is your strategy, what is your niche, and what is your risk profile, you start changing the way that you communicate with your investors. So suddenly now investors are looking at you as specialized in one particular thing. And what that does is it builds trust with those people so that they understand what it is that you do and what it is, what value you bring to the table rather than what I was doing in the very beginning of just choosing good deals and bringing them and putting them in front of everybody that I could. So, now what I do is I, I have a very specific thing that I look for, uh, and I have a regular set of investors that invest with me, and they know what I'm doing and they understand where I'm coming from, and that I'm not going to waste their time talking about something that is just way outside of something that they would be interested in. When an investor analyzes a deal for themselves, the first thing they try and do is try and decide if they understand it for themselves. And then they try and see, you know, is this very different than anything that I've ever seen? Because if it's very different, I don't want it. But if it's close to what they've seen before and they can understand the deal, and then they understand you and understand how your approach to this is and why you've chosen this particular founder investment theory to work with, then that builds that trust in order for them to invest with you. So that is the founder investment theory. Now in the next module, we are gonna talk about how to protect yourself from the very beginning from either deals going sideways or making a mistake in choosing the wrong investors.